Nehemiah's prayer. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, to, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Bow your heads with me one more time. God, we always pray before the word is spoken here. I always pray fervently to you, even during when the scripture is read, God, that this would be a time that would feed us, that this would be a time in which we would not just learn in our heads, but we'd be moved and convicted in our hearts, God. That we would be so changed and undone by the words of your scripture that we would be able to look at this point and say, that moved me, I am never the same. Your word changes me. As we sung today, that we are refined. God, I pray that even in a text like Nehemiah, that we could begin this story in this series and we could look and see how are we not so different than your people thousands of years ago. In fact, how are we so much the same, God? I pray that you would bless our time together here. In your name, amen. All right, we're starting a new series this week. Uh, we have been in a series. We took a break last week. We talked about fear last week. Um, and this week, we're starting Nehemiah. Uh, and we're starting Nehemiah for a few reasons. Um, I wanted to get into a series. We're going to be here for like three months. We're camping here for three months. Uh, Nehemiah is about, it's a story about rebuilding Jerusalem. And in, in a city of Portland, where we are as a church, 
as a revitalization of this building, of these people. I am constantly thinking about what does it mean to rebuild our identity? What does renewal mean? In, in a city that's been done with Christianity for a while now, what does renewal mean here? What does renewal mean for us internally, communally, and as a witness for our city? What is our purpose? And I think that this book over these months in so many different ways will help inform us on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church, what it means to be a global people for Jesus in these times at which we're not just dismissed, we're actually seen as ones to blame. And so, so we're going to start here, right, of course, in chapter 1. And it's, this is an Old Testament narrative, right? So with Old Testament narrative, I, I'm going to have to give you a bunch of context. I just have to because, I mean, if, if you're like me, Nehemiah might be one of those books you go, is that a minor prophet? Where is that? What, where are we in history? What's going on? I don't really know, John, what's going on in Nehemiah. It doesn't just ring a bell to me. So let me, let me paint us a little bit of a picture here. Nehemiah is a story that takes place literally at the end historically of the Old Testament. So even though in your Bibles it's, it's before Psalms, it's before Proverbs, and it looks like it's kind of smack in the middle there, historically the arc of the Bible is happening all the way across to Nehemiah, and then the historical arc kind of ends. And the rest of the Old Testament is sort of zoom-ins, focused stories. You have Esther, you have Psalms and Proverbs. You have these different zoom-ins of that history, right? And so we are actually placing ourselves at the last historical record before the Gospel of Matthew. This is the last historical event we have recorded before we get into the time of Jesus. Now, there's a 400-year gap of silence there. But this is the last historical moment. So this is, this is really the last record we have of the people of Israel before the time of the Romans. And, and it is, it is a, I'll just, I'll give away the ending a little bit. It doesn't end quite how we want it to end. But it's a powerful story that we need to understand. So where, where are we placed? If we're at the end before the New Testament begins historically, where are we actually placed? Well, the people, as you can see with Nehemiah, he is a man in exile. He's in the country of Persia. How did he get there? How, how is Nehemiah in Persia? Israel, time and time again, from the time of Moses through Joshua, they take Canaan, they have a place, they have a country, and they say, we want a king. Even though all the prophets warn, you don't need a king. You really don't. God is your king. They say, we want a king. And what happens in that process of them going for king after king is they begin to say, oh, now that we have a king, we want to be like the other nations. We want to be as powerful. Look, they're all becoming world empires. We could become a world empire. And as God gives them victories and protects them and guides them, it's not enough for them. And they begin to think, how can we make alliances? How can we build an empire? And so Solomon, at the end of his reign, sort of the height, right, of Israel, he marries women from all of the surrounding countries, builds temples to them. And that begins the fall of this great nation of God, where from that point onward, we start to see Israel splinter. First, it divides into two nations. We have Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And then it comes under attack by Assyria, then Babylon. And when it's under attack from Babylon, Babylon takes 
the Israelites into exile. And we're familiar with the story because we know the story of Daniel. Daniel takes place in the exile in Babylon. But what happens after that is a little muddy for some of us, I think. Where does it go from Babylon? How do we get from Babylon to here? Well, Babylon, as we remember with the writing on the wall, right, gets overtaken and overrun by Darius of the Medes and the Persians. And then we get to Cyrus and Xerxes. All of these world empires are fighting over in the cradle of civilization in the, middle, in the Mideast. And what comes to pass is that the Persians take over and now they are a world empire. The story of Esther takes place with Xerxes, the first king of Persia that we hear about. And then this story with Nehemiah takes place with Artaxerxes, which is his successor. So that's, I know that's a whirlwind of facts. We'll continue to dive into this. But we are in a place where Israel has been exiled. They've been taken out of their country. And they live in this culture in Persia. And Nehemiah is a man who hasn't even seen Jerusalem with his own eyes. He's grown up in exile. He just knows of Jerusalem as a heritage, as part of his culture, as part of his identity as a person that he will never have. Think of Nehemiah a little bit like a, a second or third generation immigrant into America. They understand maybe their parents speak the language, but they are through and through the culture of the place. Nehemiah is Persian. He's speaking their language. He, the word he uses for God, God of heaven, is a Persian word for an almighty God. He, he is so much a part of their culture. And yet his character through this story really helps us see what it means to live in a foreign and hostile place and yet be a people of God. So that kind of, that kind of situates us a little bit on what Nehemiah, but here's, here's, here's the first little hint of story. It's such a great drama, the way the story is told. In the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, which is like November, December, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, I imagine him up in this tower, right? Susa is a, is a, is a key city in Persia. It says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Well, why is Nehemiah even questioning them? To complicate this a little further, Nehemiah is a sequel to the book of Ezra. And so as some homework for us during this series, to go and read the book of Ezra is helpful. I'll give you a little summary of what's happening. Ezra was sent back a little earlier. Cyrus had given an edict that had sort of fulfilled the prophecies of these people. He had said, go back. You have my permission to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He gave them supplies. He gave them this was a huge moment for Ezra and this man Zerubbabel that had gone back to Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is sitting here and waiting. And he's saying, I'm so excited because God is for our people. He sent us back to rebuild the city. Tell me all about it. Nehemiah has plans. He has a vision. He has hopes. He has dreams. He has an idea of what God will be doing. He knows the Lord and he says, you are good. You are good to me. Come on, tell me. I've been waiting for you guys to show up. And his brother Hanani shows up, and what does he say? He says, those who survived the exile, Nehemiah, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. 
the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So today, in our context, not just in Portland, but this week, with what we're dealing with, we need to talk about what we can learn from Nehemiah about disappointment. In, in just in our family, this week has been not just a week of dealing with fear, but it's been a week of dealing with a lot of disappointment. Right? From the very small things, a little microcosm, my daughter's school, the first news that we kind of knew the cascade of things that were going to happen in our nation was my daughter's bee fair being canceled. She had a honeybee fair in her school. The fair's canceled, Dad. Just crushed. The fair's canceled. And I said, you have no idea. <laughs> the fair is canceled. South by Southwest and Austin is canceled. The whole city is reeling. Economy starts spinning out of control. Our in-laws are vacationing in New Zealand. Their tour is suddenly canceled. People are just racked with not just fear. I mean, we know our higher-mindedness wants to say, I shouldn't even be warranted to be disappointed. I should be thankful that I'm safe. But we're disappointed right now. Life has shown us that it, no matter how powerful, no matter how technologically advanced we are, no matter how much we think we're in front of the curve, we are fragile people and we are not in control of even the smallest aspects of our life. And Nehemiah says, this is a prophecy from God that we would go back and rebuild the temple. Are you kidding me? It's, it's, a, like, it's that bad? What happened? Nehemiah is mourning. He's dealing with disappointment. He's dealing with a, a just kind of an intense, deep, existential disappointment. It's, it's like this. It's as if in all of the waiting for a baby to come, the report that Nehemiah got was a stillbirth. That's what his feeling is like. I have prepared and I have prayed and everything was supposed to go the way I thought of it. What? What are you talking about? It's a gut punch. A commentator writes about what Nehemiah may have been thinking. He says, in the Old Testament, God enters into a covenant with Israel. They're his chosen people. And God gives to Israel all kinds of promises in which promises of land, promises ultimately of that city of Jerusalem, in which God's glory and God's relationship to his people is connected, in that this whole nexus of being the promised land and having the temple and the city of Jerusalem and being a place that is showing forth the honor of glory of God, it's all connected. See, for these people, place the identity of the city represented so much more to them. They're in exile. They're yearning for a home. And it's been taken away from them. The things that they had wanted so bad haven't materialized. My in-laws on this trip, this is their anniversary trip. They're, how many years? 30? 30 years? They've been looking forward to it forever, Right? And it's nothing to do, it's completely out of their control. For Nehemiah, this is completely out of his control. And so what does Nehemiah do? He does what we would all do. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It's okay to mourn. 
It's okay to mourn. But I want to ask us this really crucial question. And I will ask, ask this to yourself this week as you are mourning the change of plans, as you are mourning in your life outside of our just narrow context with this virus, if you're, if you're looking wider at your life and you're mourning disappointment, ask yourself, what am I mourning over? And there's two things I want to talk about in terms of what are we mourning over. We're going to tackle dealing with disappointment. And the first thing I want to ask is, what are we mourning over? Are we mourning over sin or are we mourning off the loss of our dreams and desires? What thing are you mourning? What thing is racking you? What thing is causing you to be downcast, to sit down and weep? Because for Nehemiah, he takes a specific approach to this. He sits for days and he mourns, but he is asking himself, I believe the implication here, as we, and I'll show, I'll show you how as we step through this text, is that he is trying to figure out, why am I mourning? Why am I so sad? Is it because my dreams are broken? Or is it because I'm mourning sin? And out of that mourning, out of that understanding of what we're mourning, very different things transpire. Because in one part, if you're mourning the loss of dreams and desires, you will see yourself as unfairly treated. I'll say that again. If you're mourning the loss of your dreams and desires, you see yourself as unfairly treated. You're going to respond in some symptoms will be depression, isolation, indignation, and wrath both to yourself and others. It was taken away from me. I earned that. Everything I did was right. How dare this happen? I don't understand why this would happen to me. You might get angry at God. You might get angry at yourself and say it never, all or nothing statements. It never works out for me. Right? I, had, I have an illustration for you. Maybe some of you can relate to this. I had a trip. So I, I used to make film, documentary film. And I had, so I had a trip come up. It was out of country. And I knew going on this trip... I'd love it. Who wouldn't want to have an experience? Who wouldn't want to go travel somewhere exotic and see something special? But I knew I couldn't take it. Inside, I knew I could not take this trip. I knew I couldn't find childcare for long enough. I knew I couldn't put the burden on my wife. I knew it was pretty selfish. I knew it wouldn't serve the people around me. And so I did the right thing. Oh, I did the right thing. I said no. I said, I'm not going to do it. But then what did I do? Inside, I said Gosh, I wish I'd taken that trip. Gosh, that would have been so much fun. Man, I wish I didn't have to deal with childcare. Man, if only thing after thing after thing. And what did I begin to do? I was enacting my wrath both inward and outward all over the place. I was going, I have blown my life to not be able to do this cool thing for myself. I don't like these other people because they're the reason. I'm blaming them. They're the reason that I can't be who I was meant to be. And you begin to not, I'm not mourning sin at all. I hadn't even thought about mourning my own sin. I'm mourning the loss of my dreams and my desires and the things that I ought to have. Didn't even occur to me to mourn over my sin. What ought I mourn over in that instance? And this is where Nehemiah is so helpful to us. 
Nehemiah, what are you mourning over? First, I'm sure Nehemiah is mourning first the loss of his dreams and desires. These people had gone back. They're paving the way for him. He can finally be back in Jerusalem. He wants to go so bad, right? So at first he's saying, what? And so he sits for days, mulling this over, fasting. But then he does something that I didn't do. I might have mourned. I might have even fasted. I might have said, I'm not hungry. I'm so upset I'm not hungry. It's kind of fasting. I'm not, you know, but I was not praying. <laughs> I was not praying. Nehemiah mourns, he fasts, and then he prays before the God of heaven. So this is, if you're asking yourself, why am I so disappointed? What am I mourning? This is where Nehemiah goes from whatever he was mourning to mourning sin. And he mourns it in three ways. So he, he, Nehemiah has disappointment over personal and communal sin. Let's dig in. Verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Your servant for your servants. This consciousness of personal, communal. And then, I confess the sins. We Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and the laws you gave to your servant, Moses. What's Nehemiah doing here? He's implicating himself. Disappointed by the loss of his dreams and his wishes, he traces it back. So Nehemiah sees first a world burned down by fire. The walls of Jerusalem had been burned down by fire, right? Nehemiah sees a world, a whole existence, a whole way, a whole culture burned down by fire. Put it, put it in our shoes. Right now we're seeing a, a kind of world burned down by fire. In a church, we're seeing a church burned down by fire. Leaders falling. Hypocrisy. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He has seen something burned down by fire and he traces it back. And then Nehemiah sees a people, a family line, a church burned down by fire. And he gets down to a soul burned down by fire. He traces it back. He says, no, wait, God, here I am in exile. My people go back. They have disobeyed you. And even I, God, if I really think about it, I know that I am condemned. I know that I have been, I have every right to be burned down by fire, just like Jerusalem, God. I have every right. I have fallen short. He sees himself in what I'm going to call today the earthly city. Augustine has a famous St. Augustine, early church father, writer, apologist for the Christian faith in the time of the Romans, wrote a book called The City of God. And in, in that book, he, he calls Christians in culture the city of God. And he, he contrasts that to what he calls the earthly city. So what I've thought about for this whole sermon today is mourning the earthly city. 
And when we're mourning the earthly city, do we see ourselves simultaneously as members of the earthly city, as Paul would say, the flesh, and also as members of the city of God? And do we mourn? And do we say, ah, I see the earthly city and I see it burned down. I so desire for something more. Charles Fenshaw, who's a commentator on this book, says, he says, Nehemiah knew the law. He says he refers to the Pentateuch in this prayer. And he says, the words which you commanded Moses. So Nehemiah knows that there's some breaking of the covenant here. There's some breaking of the, the covenant that God had with his people. He says it's broken. He says the stipulations of the covenant were broken and thus the covenant also. In such a case, the Jews were not entitled to the covenant love of God. This is the reason why they have had to live in such precarious circumstances in the Holy Land. So at the time for Nehemiah, much differently than us, we're in the new covenant. We're in a different space. In the time of Nehemiah, there was a physical, radical disconnection. Where he said, without the mercy of the presence of God coming down into us, we are not entitled to it. We don't get to have it. We don't get to demand it. It has to be given to us. So, he traces it all the way back to himself. And then we read verse 8. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you to the nations. So, Nehemiah is studying this and he's saying, I look I see my disappointment, the loss of my dreams. I see that it comes back to me. And in every sense, I can look back at what you said, God, and I can say, unfortunately, I see it. Unfortunately, I get it. I'm convicted. Nehemiah realized the Israelites had been buying the culture, had been seduced by the self-power narrative had been seeking the same dreams as surrounding cultures, had been worshiping the same storylines, the same gods, sacrificing their lives for the same mute idols of fame, image, comfort, and self. Any of us find ourselves in that place today, sacrificing our godly lives for mute idols of fame, image, comfort, self. And he said, thank thank." He says, I get that there is an x-axis, right? X and y-axis, let's do, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, right? I hope I got those right, okay? And he's saying, look, thank you, God, for giving me an axis. My life is just a point floating around. I'm just a point somewhere. Thank you for giving me an axis. I know where I'm at, and I'm crushed by it. See, if our Christian faith does not start at a point where we see, I am not just a point floating around, Postmodern, post-Christian Portland wants you to think you are literally just a point floating around. Of course, then every other point is going to tell you why you're not in the right place. But you're just a point floating around, right? And that's how it ought to be. Yeah, don't get me started. Don't get me started. But God says, there's, there's an axis here. And guess what? You're well below it, unfortunately. You're well below it. But the story doesn't end there. But you guys, we need to see that it has to start there. Nehemiah got that it had to start there. There's no way for Nehemiah to begin to do anything productive, to begin to love, 
to begin to actually appropriately handle his self, his disappointment with anything but self-righteousness. Unless he sees that he is somewhere on that and he's actually well below it. He doesn't measure up. Romans 6, Paul puts it just very, very clearly. The wages of sin is death. You work for sin all day long, guess what? At the end, you don't get a promotion, you die. He's just very clear. That's what the wages are. That's what you get. That's what you deserve. But it doesn't end there. So Nehemiah first dissects and discerns his disappointment. He sits for days. I'm convinced Nehemiah at the very beginning didn't have it all perfect. He was just mulling through. Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so sad? Why am I so depressed? And he sits down as a man who knows the law of God. And he says, yep, there it is. And I'm just as much a part of it as my brother Hananiah and all the people that went first. Now what? And this is where the whole story turns. Nehemiah is yearning for restoration. What does he do with his disappointment? He, he is convicted and he yearns for restoration. If we, move, if we move through the story, we can see in verse 9 that he says, but if you, okay, so I'll track you back from verse 8 just to familiarize ourselves again. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But... Verse 9, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah doesn't stop reading at the condemnation. He doesn't stop reading at the conviction because what are you likely to do at that point? If you're well below the line and it ends there, get rid of the line. Forget about it. What am I ever going to do? How am I ever going to get out of this mess? Thank God that our God is a merciful God, abounding in grace. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them. Where's Nehemiah getting all this from? He's literally like quoting Exodus 30. He's quoting the law. He's saying, no, I'm going to study it. I know you're a good God. I know you're for your people. If you have your Bibles open and you want to skip over to Exodus 30, I'm going to read a few verses here. Exodus 31 through 6 starts with verse 1. This, this is God's law given to Moses, right? He says, and when all of these things came upon you, the blessed, excuse me, Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 31 through 10. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, 
From there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. He's just quoting the law. He's saying, God, this is all I've got to lean on. I'm invoking, I'm asking for you. I'm yearning for the restoration that you promise. And I know that it is both communal and personal. So he sketches it out. He looks through the law and he sketches out and he says, what is it going to take? It takes returning to the law and obeying the commands. And I, I think that Nehemiah may have begun with fretting, but Nehemiah does not fret for long. Nehemiah sees it and embraces it. In Psalm 37, the psalmist writes, verse 5, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people can succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. See, when we are concerned with self-preservation because we are just a point, we are not condemned, we're good. We've done good things. We've just lost our dreams. See, it's everyone else, it's not us. When we get to that point, we're bound to fret because nothing makes sense anymore. Everything we were aspiring to and wanting doesn't make sense anymore. So we begin to fret. And Nehemiah, he says, no, I'm going to search the law and I'm going to commit to it. And I'm going to yearn for restoration. And at this point, Nehemiah begins dreaming a God-honoring dream that is based on a God-given promise. Nehemiah begins to dream a God-honoring dream based on a God-given promise. What's the promise? We just read it. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather. And this is written way before they're in exile, you guys. This is like prophetic law, universal, over all span of time, and it's speaking to Nehemiah. He has personalized God's promise into his life. Even if your people are ex exiled at the farthest horizons, I will gather them and bring them back. So Nehemiah, so Nehemiah begins with his disappointment. He discerns it. He traces it back, and he makes himself culpable within the disappointment. Right? That in, that in of itself is enough of a challenge for you guys to just say, go take your whole week, work on that. Right? But I would be abandoning you to depression, to, to a gross half of the gospel that wouldn't be the gospel at all. There would be no good news in that. Because you would find yourself culpable. And then you would be utterly undone by it. And you might yearn for restoration. You might yearn for what other people have. 
for what other, what other times had, what other people that weren't in your situation had. But you won't find it until you continue to go back and say, okay, you've got me. Okay, yeah, I want it. Now, can I personalize your promise? John Piper, who is an internationally well-known Baptist preacher, has a, he, he gives great advice specifically for preachers, so I'm just going to give you a little preacher advice because it hopefully will help you, helps me. When I sit here before I come up to speak, I do a little acronym that he's given me. It's APTAT. This is his acronym, A-P-T-A-T. And it begins with this. And Nehemiah, I will show you, Nehemiah is doing this acronym. This, it's amazing. First, A, he acknowledges that he can do nothing. That he is a sinful man. Without God, he can do nothing. He says, I acknowledge that the sin is on my shoulders, that I am as much as my fathers and as these people who have clearly blown it in Jerusalem or haven't been able to make it work. I can't judge them. I'm just like them. I'm just like them. He acknowledges it. Then what does he do? He does the thing I certainly didn't do when I didn't get what I wanted. Remember, I mourned, I fasted. I didn't pray. He prays. He goes to God and he prays. He prays and then he trusts. A-P-T. He trusts in God's promise. And, and if I could just, just throw this out here. I think some of us get to admitting, and then we just self-flagellate, right? We just flog ourselves all day long. Some of us get to praying, and we go, that's ah, not happening for me. Clearly, I'm not important to God. Clearly, my life, something's wrong. He's not doing it for me. And we get to trust, and we can't even touch trust. We can't even touch trust. We can't have the patience and the strength. But here is... You, you must, we must trust the promise that even when what we're doing doesn't make sense, doesn't look right, it looks upside down, we trust. So Nehemiah gets to this point where he says, okay, I am going to trust, I'm personalizing this promise for me. This is a promise made for me. And this is a promise made for us sitting in this room. I'm going to personalize this promise. God, if you said you are going to take the people from the farthest horizon and gather them and take them back, I am trusting on that. I see it in front of me. I see it. I can see the steps to get there, to get the people to gather in a dwelling place for your name. And then, verse 10, they are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Verse 11, Nehemiah's got plans, you guys. Verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then just like the ultimate cliffhanger, I was cupbearer to the king. Just the ultimate Netflix cliffhanger, right? I gotta watch the next one. Like that is like what? You're you're at the Citadel in Susa, and you're the cupbearer to the king. Wait a second, I gotta reread this whole thing. What is going on? Nehemiah goes from utter mourning for the earthly city to holy ambition in a matter of days by stepping through these actions. 
by acknowledging, by praying, and by trusting. What's the A after that? I said aptat, A-P-T-A-T, act. You act. Nehemiah is getting ready to act. He's saying, I am not going to run away in fear. I am not going to isolate and just speak lies and let the enemy speak to me. Now is the time for action. So much of our life, we actually get to a place where we know all the right things and we just don't have the courage to do the counteroffensive. We know exactly what the right move is and we're just can't do it. The trust breaks down. And God says, no, no, no. If you're breaking down a trust, I need you to go all the way. Something's wrong back here. Something's wrong at acknowledge. Something's wrong at conviction. You can't go, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, you guys. Do you know what that job is? The cupbearer is the one who drinks everything before the king drinks it to see if it's poisoned. Nehemiah has literally put his life to sacrifice his entire godly life for a pagan foreign leader of the known world who is exiled his people. Nehemiah is so convicted of his sin that he lives his whole existence out of love for the other to the point where he will die for the king. He has utterly given himself into service saying, God, this is what you put my hand. Ron told me this today. Ron said, wherever you put the hand of the plow, this week we were talking and he said, wherever you put your hand of the plow, give all of your strength to that. God has put Nehemiah's hand to the plow to be a very important person. He is one step removed from a foreign country poisoning the king of the known world. And he does it well. He is not self-righteous. He is not secretly looking down on the king of Persia. We'll find in chapter 2 that Nehemiah is a man through and through that has love because he is convicted of his own sin. He can go and he can serve in love only because he can see in the earthly city himself. Not just in the earthly city of Jerusalem and the fallen people there, but in the earthly city of all of Persia. He can see the human inclination to look out for number one, to get rid of the x-axis and just to do your life. To make your best life for yourself. Nehemiah also, as cupbearer of the king, is, he's fine. I mean, yes, he would die if he got poisoned, sure. But he's like, he's, he's comfortable. He's got a good job. He's, he lives in the citadel. Nehemiah has every reason not to go and change his life up. And yet from disappointment in mourning, he is convicted with holy ambition. He is moved because he's bound to a higher allegiance. So for our church in this time, and I don't know how it will look week to week, you guys. We're just, we're flying by the seat of our pants a little bit. We've got three months for the series. Maybe we'll be live casting some of it. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. But as a church, we cannot give up on God's mission for us, especially at this time. We are called as people into service for the earthly city because we can identify ourselves and we can say, I am culpable. I am condemned. I don't deserve anything. I am well below that line only because what, of God, what God has done, because of his promise to redeem and gather me. Can I go and do what I want, what I know I need to do? Can I step in trust 
and act. Jesus said, I will, I will make my church and not even the gates of hell will stand against it. That's the promise we in a new covenant can lean on. Not even the gates of hell will stand against renewal for this city, against revival in our hearts. But it takes us doing the little pieces. Just yesterday, I was really struggling with this, you guys, with disappointment. What does that mean about me? Asking who am I questions. Why am I here? Why do I do this? The enemy speaks into those things and he wants to isolate you. He wants to take away the bigger purpose. He wants to take away the promises. He wants you to, to take away all the outside measurements that God gives you and apply the measurements that culture gives you, which are so frenetic and spastic. They change from every person you talk to. And you are constantly not going to measure up to any of them because you don't have allegiance to anything. You've just completely given yourself in. Like Solomon, he has said, you know what's better than God and trusting in him to make us a great nation? Politics, diplomacy. It's working for the other kings. It'll work for me. I'm going to go marry, make alliances, build worship centers, do whatever I need. Look, what works is plurality here. So let's do this thing. Let's go. He just completely gives up trust. And when you give up that kind of trust and that kind of acknowledgement, your prayers are not prayers to any God. Your prayers are fretting and worry. When I was in that place, my prayers were not prayers to God, trusting in his promise. My prayers were self-exaltation, pep talks to myself to get myself out of my struggles, to convince myself, it's okay, John, you can do it, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And that's what people around you will tell you if you ask them, but not God. He says, do not pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I will do it. I have done it. Now go. Of course, Jesus, as we'll see in the series, is a far better Nehemiah. Jesus fulfills God's covenant for us. He was so pained at earthly brokenness that he took it all upon himself when he didn't even have to. He said, I will take this. I will make myself as like you when I don't have to. I will acknowledge sin and take it upon my shoulders. Though he was lawful and perfect, like Nehemiah in some ways, a godly man in an exiled and enemy culture, he took it on. He believed so much in God's restoration and promise, he sacrificed even to the point of his own life. And in some ways, Jesus is the ultimate cupbearer. He took what we didn't have so that we don't have to take. He did so that we don't have to do. And his love as somebody who didn't self-exalt, as somebody who didn't see himself as different. In fact, he served. He had every right to see himself as different, and yet he served out of love. Seeing himself as one that ought to wash his disciples' feet. And it brought extraordinary results. 
So remember this in disappointment. As we go about our week this week, to discern, to see what you are mourning. Admit that you need Jesus more than anything. More than any of your actions. There is no right step to take first other than to admit Pray to trust. And then, guys, act confidently this week. Have the courage to so trust in it, to act confident, confidently. And he will be faithful to us. Let's pray. God, we pray that, that you would bless our people. Yes, we should not be a people of fear. Yes, we should be a people of caution. God, most of all in this time, I pray that we think about how we can be a people of service. Even though we may be in places where we're okay in the next few weeks and the next month, where we are in the citadel and everything's fine for us, God, I pray that we would see that there is an earthly city that has been burned down around us. And that you have given us everything we need so that we can trust and begin to act boldly, that we can build a plan, that we can hold on to your dreams for us and let go of our selfish dreams and move forward into a a culture, to a world that is going to be reeling as compassionate people who know that the only reason we are saved, the only reason we are alive, is because of Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.